So that's really uh, kind of what we're watching is we're trying to find a moment when everybody starts scratching their heads and giving up and throwing in the towel because uh, the pain trade is happening. It's going to be an interesting couple of months, I think, particularly as I've mentioned. Um, there's a lot of things, kind of storm clouds brewing, um, and that lag is working through the system right as kind of demand is, is getting pulled off the table um, from buybacks and some other forces as well. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another edition of our Global Macro Series, where today I'm joined by my co-host Jim Kazang for a free-flowing conversation and perhaps unpredictable conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. Jim, I hope you're doing well. Are you back in Chicago today? For now, yes. I uh, have a lot of plans to travel the U.S. and, and, and get abroad as well in the coming months. But uh, for now, I'm back in Chicago, uh, starting to warm up beautiful here this time of year. That is wonderful. And by the way, um, let me congratulate you on uh, being featured in Forbes. Um, I have to say, I was very relieved when I saw it wasn't the Forbes 30 under 30 or even 40 under 40, because I know that many of these people who feature in those lists end up in, say, less fortunate situations uh, later on. So this was not one of those lists. So congratulations. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now, Jim, normally we have a guest with us where the focus really is to hear their view of the world. But today, it's just the two of us. And so I wanted to take the opportunity to discuss your macro view in more detail and also lay the foundation maybe for finding differences between how you see the world and our next guest, uh, which is next week, um, namely uh, the one and only Macro Elf, who I think might have also some strong views, but they may not be exactly the same as uh, as your view so um so this would be an interesting conversation and uh, and sort of a little bit of a um a warm up um to uh, to next week but let's let's kick it off with just kind of your big picture macro view as it stand in Q2 2023 after what can only be described as another eventful start to the year so to speak so how do you see the world at the moment yeah, so some things are are the same and think some things are changing, right? And I think the important piece, and, and you and I have talked about this before, but underneath everything right now is this still this generational populist push, right? And I think that's important to keep front and center. You know, there has been 40 years of monetary policy that has really created inequality at, at a historic scale um, that is uh, optimal for maximizing GDP, 
right? Um, we had tons of room to do it, uh, starting from 1982, you know, interest rates at 20, we were able to take it all the way down to 0% at the lower bound. And the fact that we're now, a, you know, a, a, a fiat driven world allowed for almost an unlimited amount uh, by the US Federal Reserve as, as the, you know, the reserve currency of the world. That said, um, there was always a cost to this uh, underlying and that inequality is that cost. Um, ultimately, there's a limit to how far uh, people will allow inequality to go. And we reached a bound. Um, it's not just a bound in terms of uh, stratification. It's a bound in terms of generation. You know, the younger generation was the working class. And as they have gone through this for now 40 years, that's why it took this long. They have now grown to political dominance, right, uh, or, or are growing into political dominance. And those beliefs of unfairness, uh, of inequality, of, of unjust kind of uh, stratification um, have come front and center. And that's not just here domestically, it's globally, right? I mean, I know you guys feel that there too. I was on the road uh, and, and saw this several places. That is not going away anytime soon. That ha people have to come to terms with it. Things are fundamentally different than they were for the last 30, 40 years in the sense that that inequality is, is now becoming more and more dominant. Uh, and that that populism that it drives. So I think that always has to be front and center in your mind. That is going to continue to, to, to drive, per, particularly at political intervals, right? Elections and other periods where it matters, uh, more and more rebalancing of that inequality, more populism. And that that can take the uh, the the, the, view, the uh, shape of you know more progressive. Uh, taxation, right? Uh, uh, you know, that can uh, take the shape of uh, more fiscal policy and, and money flowing to to the bottom at just from straight payments or, or other types of credits. But it also takes the shape of populism by protectionism, um, nationalism, right? And all these um, these other major forces. Again, we've talked about these, but you have to understand these are secular trends. So in the context of those secular trends, though, we have cyclical realities and those are still happening, right? Um, uh, you know, people get more and more uh, aware of these, uh, these secular realities, start positioning accordingly. Things get overdone, uh, one way and, and, uh, and ultimately also, uh, mean reverting wise, the Federal Reserve and central bankers try and, uh, you know, react to, to these, uh, these things as well. These reactionary forces, as well as the reflexive effects of position, positioning, ultimately do drive counter cyclical moves along the way. I want to be clear. Last time we saw this 6882, which is a period I referred to, uh, in, in the past, we saw three recessions, major pullbacks in inflation, major pullbacks in, in federal, uh, you know, uh, in the Federal Reserve um, funds rate, but that didn't change the bigger picture. And actually, if anything, these cyclical downturns ultimately drive more fiscal, more of these secular trends. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, when positioning gets back in line is, um, you know, it, it creates an opportunity. So that's, that's the broad framework. Uh, and I do think we're in the process of a cyclical downturn within a secular trend. And uh, as I mentioned before, if you got the secular trend right the last 40 years, you're a very, very wealthy person. Uh, you, you took advantage of growth over value. You took advantage of, uh, you know, equity uh, bond kind of, uh, you know, Risk putting parity. them together and leveraging, buying the dip and, and continuing to play this, this, these secular trends, uh, which were all very strong for quite some time. Now, if you get the secular trend right here, you're going to be very wealthy in 10 to 15 years. So don't take your eye off that ball. 
look at cyclical downturns as opportunities. Um, and I think at this point in particular, there's, there's going to be an immense opportunity here in the next six to nine months. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this was wonderful, a great kind of framework, which mentions a lot of buzzwords that we're going to dig into a little bit, uh, or quite a lot, actually, I think, in our conversation. I'll try to do my best to to structure it so that it um, you know makes sense. Now, I want to start off, I mean, there are many places we're going to cover, um, but I want to start up with a, an area that is obviously your uh, quote-unquote bread and butter, and that is vol. I think a lot of people are sitting here in April 2023. They're looking at all the events so far in Q1, and they're thinking, hmm, why is vol so low? Um, and I've heard you talk about the Fed selling puts, and recently now they're selling calls. Can you explain what that means? But then also, what does that contribute to the current vol environment, their their actions and consequences of this? Yeah, so to start with the metaphor of selling puts and selling calls, the Federal Reserve can provide liquidity to the market in several ways, right? They can do it by just flooding liquidity in the market, uh, uh, you know, via straight QE, right? Um, they can uh, they can come do that uh, at a certain decline in the market and and kind of project a uh, oh there's a put in the sense that we're going to provide this. They can do what they've done recently, which is just secure depositors, and, and that's not QE as in going straight to equity markets or bond markets, right? It is it is a a protection of of a liquidity event on the tail. Um, but they are still ultimately backstopping, providing capital um, to uh, to the market in that circumstance. And each of those have a very different type of effect. They are all positive in the sense that they are pushing money um, into the system, but they're pushing it into different parts of the distribution, right? Uh, if you if you just say, "Hey, uh, I'm going to uh, you know protect all depositors," that doesn't mean the market should go up. It does mean that the that the market has some some put on it, some some tail that it's been protected, and and markets are relatively um, you know quick to to react to to these these things. Uh, I I kind of liken it to again just a, a put in the market. If somebody comes in and uh, buys uh, buys a put or uh, sorry sells a put to the market like the Fed has done in, in reality, so, uh, dealers are going to buy that put. And buy stock back, right? So automatically, you're going to get a push as the the dealers buy that stock back and convert it to kind of a, a change in expected value of the distribution. That said, that doesn't mean the market should go up, right? Those puts are still going to go out worthless if the market goes down, just not enough. Um, so that's what the Fed's done. The Fed sold puts, and what that does is that lowers volatility. Ultimately, more importantly, that change direction. And that's what the Fed did. So the Fed took the tail off the market and reduced volatility. It did create a short-term bounce in the market. Um, we can argue whether or not it should or not, um, ultimately, uh, you know, or, or whether that's going to matter in the long run. At the same time, the Fed is coming out, giving real liquidity, which is the increase in interest rates. They're, sorry, removing liquidity from the system whenever the market goes up above a certain amount. So the, the Fed is coming out and raising interest rates, talking the market down, uh, whenever, because uh, they don't want this wealth effect. They don't want uh, interest rates lower and stimulating the economy. Um, so the Fed is essentially playing both sides of the market. And that's if you ever think about just back back away and look at the Fed and think about it. The Fed is, its core function is 
to re, you know reduce volatility in in the markets. That is its job. Its job is to smooth the business cycle. By definition, its job is to dampen volatility on both sides. Um, but it's currently doing it from both sides at the same time because it doesn't want a liquidation event. In particular, it's selling way out of the money puts, if you ask me, right? While selling more kind of close to the at the money calls. Um, and it's really trying to get the market down without a liquidation event. And that's a challenge. It's hard to do, but it's doing it by essentially uh, creating uh, liquidity on, on, on both sides, um, you know, of, of the, uh, the vol distribution. So I think that's the way to think about it. Again, it's not explicitly selling calls and selling puts. Some people get really confused by this, but what it is, is it's reducing, uh, volatility to both sides while still trying to get the market down. Generally, you don't want to fight the Fed. And that's what right. we've seen. True. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, clearly the Fed has a number of different tools in the toolbox. And I think we've, uh, at least in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen quite a few of them being used and invented, and I'm sure they have more uh, things coming. But usually all of their, uh, all of the things they pull out will have some kind of lag, some kind of lagging effect on, on different parts of the economy. Could be liquidity, uh, could be in relation to buybacks, venture capital, et cetera, et cetera. So talk to me a little bit about this. Um, I know it's also a thing you've been thinking about and, and talking about as, as well. Um, but it is it is quite an important uh, part to understand. Yeah, this is the other part, right? So you can sell puts and you can sell calls, but you can also sell them at different expirations, right? And I think that's important to understand too. How quickly is this QE coming in to the market or QT coming into the market? And if you're doing QE and QT at the same time, which is essentially what's happening, um, are they of the same duration? And, and I'm going to say, no, they're not. They're actually quite different durations in the way they operate on the economy. Um, and, and so the, it's important to understand how those two things are, are operating together, right? And I think the important part here is interest rate increases. You know, we've done 5% move very slowly through the economy. They act um, particularly with a lag on the majority of assets, right? Um, if you think about, I, I've mentioned this before, but there's about $450 trillion of global assets. About $100 trillion of those are domestic equities. The other $350 trillion operate in a massive lag. Think about commercial real estate. Um, think about uh, venture capital and private equity, and right? We can keep on going. All of those re-rate very slowly. Um, and even the equity market in terms of core demand, you know, buybacks operated a massive lag as well. A couple of examples. Just in the in Q1, buybacks were almost at the record level of last year, right? But interest rates were increased from zero to five all throughout that year. It takes time. This quarter, we're starting to see buybacks fall off a cliff, right? But that's how long it took. It took about a year. Uh, in terms of real estate, the last Housing starts number here in the U.S. showed a 22% increase in housing starts for multifamily homes. Why? I mean, it's not zero interest rates run from zero to five. It's not projects that are starting now. It's the projects that were started a year ago that are now finally starting and breaking ground. This is how the lag acts in real life, right? This is how interest rates act in real life. There's a major, major delay. So we see this coming, like we see the wave in the distance. It's it's coming. Um, and it's not a matter of whether we're raising interest rates more here. It's, it's still the effects of what we've already done, right? Um, at the same time, 
demand is strong currently because there's a lag and the demand that this is reacting against is, is significant, right? I mean, let's not forget we did almost $10 trillion of fiscal stimulus here in the United States, of which is just starting again to, to work its way in at the same time. Um, so there, you have these two kind of slow moving forces, right? Uh, a strong demand, um, engine and, and all the effects that we talked about with populism that are, are driving even more fiscal as we go. We keep seeing it as well as, um, more protectionism, more onshoring, more things that are generating more core, uh, protection for labor, uh, and, and demand for, for labor here domestically. Same in other countries, right? Um, that are generating kind of this underlying uh, trend. So we've done now that those are the slow moving kind of uh, pieces to, to monetary policy. The faster moving ones though are this, is this put, right? We, we just secured depositors um, on the banking side. That has a quick, immediate effect, right? Um, the, the, the treasury general account, which is a form of, uh, you know, uh, actual stimulus as well is coming through uh, directly into the economy as, as uh, we're going through this current uh, political debate, right, about raising the debt ceiling. And so all of those are, are immediate uh, pushes in demand, as well as the wealth effect that we're seeing with the market pushing higher. So in the short term, we have very positive kind of QE dominant kind of moves uh, that are exacerbated by the wealth effect that's being generated by them, not to mention the positioning, which is an important thing I haven't noted, which is people trying to get short ahead of looking at, okay, this big wave is coming in the future, right? There's a reason uh, that, that people are positioning more shortly and, you know, there, there, there's a structural flow reason. Hedge funds are actually quite short right now and they tend to be right uh, eventually, right? Um, uh, but my point is, reflexively, there's a short positioning. There's, you know, short-term QE and lots of different ways flowing through the economy, while a big slower-moving kind of tidal wave is coming. And so, um, historically, a lot of times this is what happens. Uh, this isn't, you know, this is worse than I think more exaggerated on both sides than typical. So more of a kind of a higher potential energy situation. But there's a reason in 99 before the 2000 kind of crash, we got this big run up. There's a reason, reason in 07, we started getting kind of this counter, these counter trend moves before it rolled over in 08. Even in 2020, we've talked about that Feb March window where it rolled over. We knew about COVID coming in December, early January, but the market rallied, right? Because positioning gets short ahead of these things. People see it coming. They're looking forward, but the actual structural demand, uh, you know, has yet to come out of the market yet. And sometimes there's even more QE or, or more kind of short-term moving stimulus that is acting much quicker that can lead to a blow off top. And so I think we're in this really this push pull, which comes from the Fed selling on both sides. But one of those, uh, which is that call is written uh, much further duration and uh, much more powerful in terms of where it will ultimately take everything. Whereas in the short term, we're having um, really kind of sugar QE um, uh, on the on the put side. So I think that's how, how we're thinking about this world and why we, we think there's a high likelihood of some type of squeeze blow off top or at the very least duration and time, which is this is, you know, that's going to take for this to, to move along. 
regardless of people seeing the tidal wave in the distance, um, it's, uh, it, you know, we need to bleed out puts and positioning uh, in one form or another. Uh, and that, again, that's generally a counter trend move that squeezes and, and loses con people's conviction in, in, in the narrative, uh, or, or maybe that tidal wave doesn't matter, right? Uh, uh, you know, when the deflationary arguments start building uh, front and center, uh, which I think will be a pertinent conversation, uh, you know, when we talk to macro wealth, um, you know, Volin pins that way often. You create more potential energy from a higher move in the market um, while whilst changing that narrative and positioning. And that ultimately, uh, you know, with their secular realities coming, uh, will will pair up uh, smoother position, better pos positioning uh, while uh, macro itself um, becomes more fragile. So that's kind of how these things tend to work historically, how we think about them, how we think about them now. But there really are these two countervailing forces uh, and they're operating in different ways. Okay, so let me try and summarize some of that, but then also add uh, a few other things to it. Uh, so by the way, uh, I think a lot of people um, focus on just the, I mean, there's a few different factors you mentioned there, uh, for sure. I think one of them that people really focus on a lot is this, you know, change in interest rates and the fact that we've done it now for 12 months, pretty much, or 13 months now by now, and it's been the fastest rate in however many decades, et cetera, et cetera. But if you went back 60 years and you looked at all these interest rate um, hiking cycles, and maybe even also the losing, uh, when they uh, decrease interest rates, as far as I can tell, and from what I've listened and heard from people, they think that kind of the average lag for interest rates is about 18 months. So we still actually have uh, some ways, uh, a little bit further to to wait uh, until that kicks in. But just going back to your point, so if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that people can see these things coming, and then some people will simply go out and, and react to it, but in reality, it's a bit too early. So the market will, I wouldn't say sniff it out, but they will essentially force them to, they will squeeze them to get the latest or the last parabolic move out of the of the markets before the real move happens. And that kind of makes sense. Things take longer uh, than we all expect. Uh, I, I'm sure we can all relate to that. But then I want to add something that we don't talk so much about other than you and I actually having uh, talked about it, but but I don't think the market focuses this because this is probably the longest lag of, of all of them, but it could be the biggest impact. And that's demographics. I mean, a lot of people talk about, uh, I wouldn't say a lot of people, people talk about uh, the changing demographic. And I'm thinking that that may override everything we talk about, so to speak. But it also may mean that a lot of these things that the Fed is doing and other people are doing policy-wise, et cetera, et cetera, may not take into account that there's going to be this wave of change. Again, you can talk about what you think that might mean, but but this wave of change from the simple fact that demographics are changing we haven't even touched on deglobalization. We can do that as well, but let's just stick with demographics. How how, how do you factor this in, and, and and do you know anything about what kind of lags to expect from demographics? Listen, um, it's all about, you know, demographics is destiny. You've heard that a million times before. But the reason I have such conviction in these, this view I've had for now several years, which has kind of played out step by step here, is because by definition younger generation is the labor class. They are defined by how they grew up, right? They're, they're, they're 30, 40 years. The way they see the world, 
I think we all agree. I, again, I don't know how you feel about it there in your seat in Europe, but here, like there's a, there's a conversation. There always is, right? Oh, the generation, this next generation thinks differently. But they really do. There is a generational shift here because monetary policy has taken us to such an extreme over such an extended period of time. Um, I grew up in a very different time, right? Than, than, and, and have very different views as a function of that experience. Um, and I'm very, um, you know, sympathetic to uh, the views that these people have, you know, this generation has as a function of how they grew up, right? But the reality is that demographic reality uh, is a function of time. You know, they will be the primary voting class and it's particularly big and important now because millennials represent a bubble, much like baby boomers did, like a, a strat, you know, they're a much bigger part um, than, than, uh, than anybody else except for the baby boomers who are now at the same time dying, retiring, et cetera. Um, so we're getting a dramatic reduction in, in, in uh, amount of people working, right? Uh, on one side, uh, at the same time that there's a, a massive new voting bubble uh, coming in with a new view of, of how things should work and what is fair. Um, again, I've, I've used this stat before, but Millennials are at 40% of the wealth creation that uh, baby boomers were at this point of their, uh, you know, at this age. Uh, and a similar number in terms of household formation. That's potential energy. There's, there's no other way to put it. Um, and there is a, a feeling and a need to catch up. You know, people are living at home, uh, you know, and it's, it's every, all relative as well to look at, uh, you know, your parents and your parents' parents and to feel a loss of status, a loss of inability to to accomplish the same dreams or uh, you know fulfill the same goals, um, is a very powerful force. Um, so that's what's happening underneath everything here, and it's just beginning. If you look at you know where millennials on down are in terms of the voting cycle, you know again they have a long way to go to build homes. Right when everything is expensive and supply is low. Uh, and that's not just homes, it's across the board. And this is what's a major driver um, of, of um, inflation and will continue to be. Um, it, it is, we are changing the, uh, you know, the stratification. Um, and if you choose to do that as a society, right, politically, if you choose to make that a priority, again, not maximizing to GDP, not maximizing to total output, but maximizing to median outcomes, which seems like a similar thing, but they're really not. Um, that dramatically changes the relationship between, uh, you know, uh, inflation and maximum employment. Um, and that is really putting the Fed in a box. Um, you know, the labor, the Phillips curve, right? Nobody talks about the Phillips curve anymore and, and the role of labor and, uh, you know, uh, and inflation. Guess what? That's going to become central again because, because ultimately these political forces um, are, are back, uh, you know, front and center. So, uh, again, long-winded way of saying, yes, that is the core issue here. How, what kind of lag does it operate on? Decades, <laughs> not quarters, not years, decades. Um, this is a, uh, this is a structural secular force. And again, I want to back up and just say this one thing. Everybody for 40 years has played in two dimensions. Markets are two dimensions. Everything is what cycle are we in? Where is the Fed in this cycle? And how is it going to react? Because we've only really 
the Fed has been in control and had a controlled environment where they could very easily come back in, right put, stimulate, re, you know, inflate the, uh, I don't say bubble, but reinflate the market, right? Reinflate assets. Um, but that's because they didn't have a countervailing force that forced them in a box. And now there's a countervailing force, which is inflation and essentially fiscal uh, stimulus coming in to rebalance this inequality. And that ultimately means we're no longer playing in two dimensions. We're playing in a much less controlled environment where the Fed has less control and it's much more dimensional. There are, there are many more dimensions that, that things can move in. And that's, we're dealing with a secular reality with cyclical in between. And that really complicates things. Uh, and it happens to be in a situation where potential energy and liquidity has, is at a record, right? And a lot of valuations and, you know, uh, price to sales, all these things are at records because it's been such a controlled system that we felt that we could take these risks or, or, you know, markets naturally went to these extremes. So we're at an extreme circumstance where control of, 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 of the you know, most dominant entities is diminishing. Um, and so the dimensionality of that type of a system increases. And um, I think that's how we have to prepare for the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, no, I'm, I very much agree with your your thoughts, and and I think we're going to have a, a smashing conversation uh, with with Macroalf because I I know that he has some some different views to some extent, certainly on on some of these things, and 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 as you rightly say, uh, in um, what what we shouldn't forget, but what is very easy to forget is that um, the the Fed and what they're able to do, they may act exactly the same as they've done in the last 40 years. They may do exactly the same things when the economy slows down, they'll do, you know, easing, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the the what people will be surprised is how the how little effect it may have or or what effect it may have. The other thing about downturns and, and recessions, et cetera, et cetera, is that's an environment where you often see these nonlinear events much more so than than in when everything is going well and so on and so forth. It makes it much, much harder, not just for investors, but for policymakers, et cetera, et cetera. So I really do think we are in for um, uh, just for something that we cannot imagine right now. So we talked about demographics. Now, in my little simple world, um, I'm thinking, okay, well, if there's going to be fewer young people to work going forward, that's going to have an impact on inflation. Now, not in our series, but actually in uh, in the Ideas Lab series on the podcast with Kevin, uh, he had, and I forget the name of the person, it's uh, not good of me, but but he, um, I think he's ex-Morgan Stanley, and he wrote a book um, uh, with another well-known author about the effects of, of uh, demographics. Um, and, and they were saying, well, this really is an inflationary force. Um, even though other people, I think, have come to the opposite conclusion, which is typically in e- economics, you have two people looking at the same number, and they'll get it. They'll they'll come up with with completely different uh, things. Now, I, I want to hear your thoughts about inflation. You know, CPI stickiness, maybe even some of the things that's happening. Uh, you know, OPEC recently did something in 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 the oil to the oil market, and and I just want to add one little anecdote to this, and that is, I was at a family event um, uh, a few weeks ago, 
And one of the people uh, there um, I was sitting next to uh, was one of the negotiators for the employer side in all of these wage negotiations that's happening in many countries in Europe at the moment. And of course, the unions, because of what we've seen in terms of inflation, et cetera, et cetera, had a pretty strong hand this year. So even in Denmark, where we're generally not the worst country when it comes to inflation, they still had to agree to about 6-7% annual wage increase for the next couple of years. I know in Germany, I only know this because I fly a lot with uh, with the Lufthansa group, let's call it that, and they often have blockages right now where people walk out because they're looking for like 10% per year wage increase, right? So so, so how, where do you sit in uh, on inflation, generally speaking, but also maybe tying it a little bit into to your view on on the demographic uh, effect? And, and sorry to go on for so, so long, Jim, but this is one of the things where I worry that when people talk about what's going on right now, uh, they will relate back to a similar event that happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But again, as we talked about before, yes, but that was in a certain cycle. And when the cycle is different, this may have, you know, a completely different effect. So anyways, I think you know where I'm going with this. I'll I'll hand it back to you. Yeah. So it kind of drives me a little crazy. Everything I read is, are we going into a recession? Are we not going into a recession? It's this overly simplistic, two-dimensional, as I was mentioning, view to how the world works because Everybody that's been in this market for the last 40 years, right? That's all that's mattered. And even the bond market, which we always think, oh, the bond market's always right, right? Bond market's been pretty wrong the last couple of years, a couple of times, right? Because it's still playing the last 40 years game, which is very much just thinking about cyclical, you know, forces. Um, the reality is, again, it's multidimensional now, and that, that secular force um, is is the dominant thing. I think the worst case scenario here for markets is ironically not a deep recession, right? I think that's what everybody's worried about. Oh, are we going to get a recession? Actually, I think um, the worst case for markets is is kind of a stagnation, um, you know, uh, uh, where in particular demand stays quite strong, which is kind of what we're seeing right now. Um, where you get more of an earnings recession, which is also kind of what we're seeing because margins are compressing from record levels because of higher interest rates, because of labor costs, because of deglobalization, all the things, those go to margins more than they necessarily go to GDP, right? Um, and so I, th- I think this is, again, what we saw in the, in the 60s and 70s, um, a, a hot demand push economy where earnings get smashed, right? And multiples get smashed as a result of not just earnings coming down, but less demand for assets. Um, While the demand in the economy stays strong. Again, I've mentioned this before, but 60s and 70s, 68, 82, we actually had above trend GDP growth in real terms with high inflation. We had above trend. That's higher than we've had in the last 20 years. Yet the markets went nowhere in nominal terms and lost a ton of value. That is where we we are going. The demand is quite strong. GDP, which is how we define a recession, right, is actually hanging in there. And it keeps like, everybody keeps calling for the recession, but oddly, it just it's sticky. It's because demand is strong. But that doesn't mean earnings are going to be strong. Again, earnings are falling off a cliff, right? And we see it happening. I mean, um, we've, and that's, that's a secular, you know, 
last year and a half trend. Um, so expect that to be the case. Uh, all this talk about recession, it's not about demand falling off a cliff. It's about margins falling off a cliff. Um, and ultimately, that's kind of the worst case scenario because that keeps inflation sticky, right? While stocks themselves can have major headwinds. Um, the market is not the economy, right? We've talked about this. Whereas everybody out there is still conflating those two things. Um, you know, in all the conversations, everybody comes in, you know, talks about, okay, are we getting a recession or are we not? And what does that mean for markets? Um, again, I want to reiterate a, a weak, uh, market, a, a relatively strong economy would be the worst of both, both worlds. And that's what happens in a stagflationary environment. That's why it exists. Um, you know, uh, so I, I really do feel that, um, you know, a weak recession here coming into an election cycle will likely lead, you know, it'll be stagflationary enough to give, you know, with markets kind of weak, to give, uh, you know, the green light for more fiscal stimulus, um, right as demand is actually still quite strong. Right. The, the, the other th and the other thing, Jim. Sorry to interrupt here. The other thing, I, I when I, I again, I completely agree with you. The the conversations that we see are so black and white. Right. Recession, no recession, hard landing, soft landing, which we'll maybe come to. But 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 I think what people are are uh, are saying is they're saying, oh yeah, we're going to have a, a recession. And that means much lower interest rates. But it's that other thing, much lower interest rate, that I'm not so sure that will happen. And and this is just one little uh, example of of where things might get really difficult for in in many in many dimensions, actually, because then that's the reaction pattern that is breaking from what we what we're used to. Correct. And and, and from a trading perspective, I just want to bring this up. You know, the best trades are when the positioning kind of is no longer expecting the same secular outcome. You kind of need, this goes back to our original conversation, this rebalancing and positioning relative to the secular trend to really get the next big move in that reality. So ironically, even though everybody's talking about recession and, you know, uh, and, and like, oh, this market's going to go lower if we have a recession. Ironically, if, if we get a recession, you're also going to get a rebalance of some of this positioning. And that's what we're seeing, right? We're hearing a lot more deflationary talk. We're, we're seeing some of those secular inflationary bets coming off the table, whether it's, you know, the interest rates in the back end of the curve or the dollar, or, you know, we can keep on going through kind of all the, the trades, right? But that's exactly what you need to unpin the move for, for the next move. So, um, ironically, Again, a recession, a light one, or a stagflation, right? That that is is one of the things that I think will create an opportunity uh, for a big secular second move trade, which may be the biggest trade. Again, and you looked at it sixty eight to eighty two. The the first initial trade was good on inflation, but the best trade was that second move when uh, you know after uh, after you got a, a slight deflationary pullback from that first initial inflationary push you know, in, in uh, 69 to 72, then you got that really big inflationary push the second cycle. And that's when markets lost trust, their initial trust in the Fed. And, and, and you saw the bond market really start to raise long-term inflation expectations. And that was a self-perpetuating thing at that point. I think that's where we're heading. 
Right yeah, so I definitely want to get to that in a second. And so remind me if I forget, because I do want to hear, I know you've started this period a lot, and I do want to hear that if, and this is a big if, if we're going to see something similar, uh, it may not be the equities that people should be focusing on. It could be something completely different. But before we get to that point, I just want to get back to the thing that I, I, I mentioned also is I mentioned that labor cost, I think, is something that may be underestimated because of demographic, uh, the demographic situation. And by the way, again, another little anecdote, uh, I know Denmark is a small country, but still, we just reported this week the highest number of people being employed ever. Right? And you're thinking, well, that's interesting after a year of interest rate hikes, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, there's never been a period in, 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 in the history of Denmark that we've had more people employed, which is quite interesting. But I wanted to ask you about the other thing, um, because I think you had mentioned at some point uh, that OPEC makes some changes. And I want to ask you, so I, I see labor costs, that's clear, but what are the other sources of, or input sources in, in all of this uh, conversation about uh, sticky CPI, et cetera, et cetera, that you're seeing or keeping an eye on? So labor is that central secular force, right? That's the populism piece, et cetera that we've been talking about. But it's important to note, in the context of a month and a half ago, not that long ago, right? The Fed was being very activistic, you know, against inflation. We had had like three hot CPI numbers in a row. Um, you know, uh, the, the rhetoric was we need to go higher. That's when oil was at 62, 64, I forget exactly, the, the low 60s. Um, China was still just coming out of kind of lockdowns or significantly stimulating more as we go here and the economy is really getting moving there. You know, the dollar has weakened dramatically after this, uh, you know, and interest rates have come down uh, in the back end of the curve. All of these things are stimulative to the economy or, or inflationary, right? Uh, you know, some combination of, of hot for them, you know, for inflation here domestically. So I think it's important to note, like all the things that were, you know, were working for the Fed um, and working, uh, you know, against inflation in the background, other than labor, um, have actually turned the other way. So I, I think there's a lot of, uh, again, commodity strength, not just because of the uh, the OPEC put, which, by the way, we, you and I talked about, you know, proactively a quarter ago, um, you know, continues to be front and center. Um, and in my view, will continue to be much like the 60s and 70s, you know, because, again, entities are going to flex their muscles more. And, you know, when there's resource scarcity, use that to their advantage. So so OPEC, uh, the move higher in commodities, the uh, the supporting support of demand uh, inter internationally from from a reopening that is that's been delayed here domestically, the weakness of the dollar, which has been a pretty dramatic move um, that was helping the U.S. export inflation for quite some time. Now it's working the other way, right? And I think that's something very few people are talking about. Never mind the wealth effect. Markets are right back near its, you know, short-term highs, uh, you know, uh, and uh, and particularly in speculative assets, which tend to be more owned by, by the populace. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at where Bitcoin is relative to, you know, where it was a month and a half ago, all of these things, you know, have to be making the Fed a little nervous. Um, that uh, and, and a lot of those don't act with as much of a lag, right, as as some of these other issues as well. So um, this is why the Fed's going to be 
back in there selling calls. Uh, you know, it's likely to keep CPI sticky um, in in the short to medium term. Um, despite again that lag that's ultimately coming cyclically from from the increase already. So we'll hear a lot. You can again, this is another prediction we'll put out there. We can point back to, but you're going to hear a lot about how the Fed overreacted, went too far into the next coming recession. Uh, it won't be that big a recession, and that probably will not be the correct comment. But everybody's going to start talking about that. The deflation narrative will become front and center as people get worried about, you know, uh, what's a short-term, you know, stagnation recession. And again, I think that is ultimately um, an opportunity to, for for the more secular trade, um, and will will be proven incorrect as well. Yeah, just just a, just a couple of thoughts. Actually, again, a little anecdotal story uh, from my uh, little uh, life perspective here. Uh, you talked about China's reopening, uh, and I know this is a very small um, sign of of uh, or piece of evidence. But I was actually flying to Singapore uh, uh, last week, and uh, of course, Singapore Airlines is one of those airlines that still operate the big A three eighty and um, and and a few of them from Europe, and that's great. That's you know wonderful. Love that uh, plane. Um, and then the person came and said to me, oh, by the way, make sure you do a few more of these trips on the A380 before the end of May um, because it's going being going out of service. And I thought, that's weird. I mean, I thought, you know, things were picking up. And he said, yes, all the big planes are going on routes to China. So in tourists are coming back. And actually, when I spoke with people in Singapore, they were still saying, yeah, the main difference we, we feel still is the fact that there aren't that many Chinese people yet, but we see the difference. It's changing. So it speaks, I mean, in a very little simple way, but it speaks to what you're 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 talking about. Yeah, the inflationary push that we have from the ten trillion dollars and the reopening here domestically, et cetera, we completely just blocked out the fact that, you know, the second biggest in the economy was essentially closed <laughs> that yeah. whole time. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh, ne- never mind the 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 core of industrial demand. Oil again was relatively contained in its move, right? And and uh, never mind the, the release of the SPR during that last election, right? And all the effects that had. Um, so yeah, commodity strength um, is likely to be sticky even into a maybe local stagnation uh, or recession. Uh, and never mind, again, all the other benefits of the weakness of the dollar, the strength of the dollar that now are kind of moving the other way, et cetera. So I, I really... Um, yeah, I, I think this is, we, we have, we only saw part of, you know, we thought the inflationary push was so extreme and, um, but we had a lot of things going for us during that time, which actually helped contain it. Um, and, and that are likely to now extend out the, uh, the, the inflationary push and keep it stickier for longer. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that that we started talking about the oil uh, put uh, back last year. With it was actually Adam Rosenzweig who who mentioned it to us on a recording, and actually Adam is coming back and recording with us in in a couple of weeks. So so the commodity part will definitely have to to cover there. Well, one other thought I had uh, listening to you, and and I know you started that period of the late sixties and and seventies quite a lot, and I'm I'm thinking here. People have been calling for a pivot of the Fed, et cetera, et cetera. It hasn't come yet. They're still talking about higher for longer, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, do you also think that actually it's easier for the Fed and for Powell in particular simply just to keep it high for so long that actually the recession might be a little bit worse than it would otherwise have to be? Because then he's kind of, then he has an excuse for pivoting 
rather than pivoting too early and then having to defend kind of why he did it because I think he's pivoted before that people didn't um, appreciate. Is there a little bit of an argument there for for maybe him causing a bit more of a downturn than is needed? Yeah, I mean, listen, he doesn't want to be seen politically, right, as as not fulfilling his mandate of price stability. Uh, again, uh, there's, I think we all know uh, how people uh, look at Volcker, right, relative to his predecessors, you know, like Burns, right? Burns is kind of painted as a, as as the cause of that 60s, 70s inflation. So he has a lot of political pressure to kind of, um, uh, to stand up to that. So I, I agree, that's politically the more palatable uh, solution. He has an excuse. And again, to your point, not just in Europe here, like, you know, uh, unemployment's 3.6%. It's a historic low. Uh, they don't, they will want it, maybe not at 10%, right? Which is what the recessions were, you know, uh, you know, again, to put it in constant context, 68 to 82 had three recessions. Each of them, uh, we went to nine and a half to 10 and a half to 11% unemployment. I mean, we're sitting at 3.6. Like we're so far away from kind of our Volcker moment. Um, so yeah, I think he, you know, interest rates are still, uh, negative in, in real terms, still like a year later, still, um, like never mind Volcker moment. Like we're, um, so yeah, I, I do believe uh, this whole idea of a pivot. You know, again, the, the Fed is playing its narrative games to help kind of manage volatility on both sides and to kind of work through this. But the reality is they're they're not even close yet to where kind of they would want to be in order to um, uh, cyclically kind of reduce inflation. That said, to step away from all this for a lot, one last second. I don't think the Fed has the tools to really, again, control the secular inflation we're talking about. And you could argue that doing the cyclical game to control inflation in the short term ultimately makes secular inflation worse and is perpetuating a longer inflationary picture. So that's a whole other conversation, it, right? It, it is, but I think what, what I think what it, it, it the the picture it paints for me is that we've saw we've seen this massive change in interest rate to the upside. When they get to the point of easing, we may also actually get pretty aggressive uh, moves from the Fed on that because of the instability and they're trying to navigate. So it's almost like they're turning the wheel from, you know, as far left as it can get to the as far right as they can get instead of just keeping it steady. So I actually think it's it's going to be an interesting um, market for investors, incredibly challenging. Um, I want to shift asset class for a little bit and then I'll come back to equities um, because you mentioned in passing about the 68-82 period where um, I kind of uh, read it as actually it was really not about the stocks. It was about the bonds. And so I'm thinking if if your scenario is kind of painting um, something similar in, in, in your head, uh, are, are you, quote unquote, getting more? I mean, I don't know quite how ready you are to diversify your, your firm and your funds into to other than equity stuff. But if you could, would you be focusing on your attention on other things than the equity vol? It's always about the bonds, right? That's what caused the forty-year, the forty-year cycle. Is the 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 you know forty-year de- secular decrease in interest rates created the the forty-year you know boom in, in equities? Um, yeah, to you know we are launching uh, again. I don't want to talk about it too much detail, but a, a more macro 
product because, again, much like you and I have talked about for the last year, macro uh, is is you know the the story of the coming 10, 15 years, particularly this five years when you're on a term. Macro does very well on a term because there's just more opportunities at an extreme uh, when things start to change. Um, and particularly in a time, as we talked about, where things are, are at an extreme, there's much more potential energy in a system, um, which can create leptocurtic moves across asset classes, as we've seen. It hasn't been as much in equities yet. Um, that doesn't mean it's not going to be. Um, but historically, particularly in this interest rate moving time, yes, it's more about bonds. It's more about currency. It's more about precious metals. Uh, it, it, there, there are um, significant tail realities to a rebalancing system. Um, and so I, I do think that's been the story of the last year. I think that will continue to be the story for some time. Um, macro will do well, but particularly if you can bet on asymmetric outcomes, um, you know, in that macro world, I think there's significant, um, opportunities, uh, for really like, you're going to see a lot more, you know, oh, that was a 10 standard deviation move, you know, type conversations, uh, across the market. Um, so, so a hundred percent, um, that, that's not to say that equities won't do some interesting things, uh, and particularly internally. To be clear, yes, the broad market equity, you know, volatility has been relatively low. But underneath the surface, we've seen some pretty dramatic moves between growth and value, and uh, you know, uh, you know, things across the internal structure of of equities themselves. That was actually going to be my next point. So you're a little bit psychic here, Jim. Uh, but 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 before I, I go there, I just want to say if if people uh, want to hear about opportunities, it, because you mentioned precious metals, I think they should go back and listen to uh, our conversation with Rick Rule a couple of weeks ago. I mean, that was that was a, uh, you and I didn't have much, and uh, we didn't say much in the in the whole recording. Uh, Rick was on a roll, so to speak. Um, but but it really was a fun, very insightful, um, and quite a personal at times uh, conversation. So I just want to throw that in. But I do want to get to this, uh, you know. So at the moment, I think a lot of people look at the S and P and say, "Well, it's still pretty high." So we haven't seen much of an effect of all of these things changing. Um, but then I'm thinking, well, maybe we need to look slightly deeper or we need to look a little bit broader because once you start looking at, say, broader equity indices like the Russell 2000, well, it's not it's not doing as well as it, you know, as the S&P, right? Credit spreads have, spreads have, have widening. So, so are these some of the things that you're, you know, there is a danger that this equity rally will continue, but there's also a, a danger when when it ends <laughs> at some point. So what are the things you're looking for to determine whether we're getting close to the end or at the end? Yeah, I mean, we've seen this, uh, and I've talked about this in other contexts before, but equity vol can often be the plug um, that kind of pins uh, a market reflexively. Um, and vol supply is very strong, um, still in the equity uh, markets right now. The, the missing ingredient is really the unpinning of that vol. And uh, again, not to kind of say this has to be the way it ends, but but often that unpinning happens 
in unexpected ways and tends to happen to the upside because it's just not the way people market structure expects. And can I just, just, just so people are absolutely clear, they understand when you say the unpinning of vol, what you're, what you're saying is that markets will suddenly explode in terms of volatility, but it not necessarily to the downside initially. It could be an explosion of volatility, realized volatility to the upside. I mean, it's just something that is different from this kind of ever decreasing level of vol that we're seeing at the moment. I think two-week vol is like the lowest in whatever and 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 stuff like that. Yeah, it's two years. It's the lowest uh, kind of VIX print in two years. Uh, yeah, so generally speaking, the way fixed strike vol works, right, calls get priced on a lower implied volatility. And at some point, that out, out of the money call, which people start assuming, okay, we're not going any higher. We're going to I'll, you know, I'll be short this market if it goes up another three, four percent. So I'll sell these calls or whatever. So it reduces volatility. Entities are writing calls over their stock position, et cetera. When that happens and this vol gets very pinned, um, you know, that means dealers are long vol now. They're, they're, you know, they're scalping gamma. But if you can squeeze, keep going up high enough, that implied vol slides down to a level naturally where people will start to say, wait a second, I'll replace my stock with calls. Uh, these, these calls are starting to perform better and I can get downside protection. When you get to that part of the cycle, it's a signal to kind of street like, oh, if this market goes up, vol's good. And if the market goes down, vol's not bad either. And it can create a cycle like within weeks or months, right? Where vol just secularly on a fixed strike basis, maybe you don't see it as much in the VIX, but there's a floor on the VIX and vol supply starts getting unpinned, meaning dealers are no longer long all this vol. The street ends up getting shorter and shorter vol. And eventually that'll push broadly vol higher. And that also unpins the market, right? That means that 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 now there's not gamma hedging coming in long where they're, uh, you know, selling when the market goes up and buying when it goes down. Now, if the market gets starts getting short and the market starts to move, uh, they have to do the opposite. They have to sell when the market goes down and buy when the market goes up. So there's just kind of some structural dynamics that exist and, and why... This is the one part of that. I said there's three dynamics that if the market goes higher, it's like a rubber band. One of them is just potential energy, how far off, off the floor you are. Second one, obviously, you know, the narrative changes with price. So people start getting out, getting squeezed on their shorts and, the, you know, start getting more bullish or getting forced back in. Those are the ones most people understand. But the third important dynamic is this, this vol and pinning that tends to happen into a last final upside move. And if there is squeeze, it can be a fairly fast move where vol itself goes higher and you unpin that vol supply, which kind of releases the the uh, you know this this controlling um, implied vol plug on the market, and so that's kind of what you're looking for into this final move. Um, if you get it, that would be the you know the quickest route to a, a reversal and, and a matching of kind of the secular effects with the. Um, with, you know, with, with positioning. Um, so anyway, that's again, may have gotten too yeah. far down. No, no, kind of- uh, this is great. And, but obviously with my limited uh, knowledge in, in the vol space, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, in a sense, when I hear you talk about that, it would be kind of ironic in a sense that now that long vol strategies has suffered so much, we're almost now maybe close to the point where they might actually start doing well again when people have left the space. But at the same time, I think a lot of vol strategies, generally speaking, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of vol strategies 
has a basic assumption built into them, and that is that there's negative correlation between the VIX and, and the S&P. And here we might actually end up with an explosion of all and positive correlation between the two, at least for a while. Correct. And that tends to be what happens at the end of these, these moves. Um, and that's part of what makes it so difficult, right? Um, uh, you know, the pain trade would be market up vol up here for some time, right? Because, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, that's, that's kind of a situation where a lot of the entities will be forced back in and they'll be forced to cover the short vol kind of risk on pieces there. And, um, so again, we'll see. That's the quickest route to, uh, this kind of secular reversal. Um, the other one is, you know, uh, time. Uh, can also bleed, uh, you know, shorts out enough eventually uh, and, and build short convexity because ultimately you get customers uh, too, too short vol and, you know, things can blow up. But Sure, sure, sure. Jim, um, since we're recording again in a couple of days with Macro Elf, um, you may still have some powder, you know, left. Um, do you wanna? Is there anything you wanna bring up before we 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 wrap up today, or 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 will you just uh, whatever we didn't touch on today? I'm sure you'll bring up with with, with Alf uh, in in a couple of days. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the the big takeaway right now is, you know, positioning is not where it needs to be yet, despite what we all know to be the secular realities. Um, so you're really kind of looking for that moment, right? Where the positioning itself changes um, and the narrative changes. If you look at hedge funds, like hedge funds are getting short here. Uh, there's a structural reason why that's happening. If you look at the data, it's it's turning um, if you look at the Fed and what it's doing, like they're telling you what they want. Everything lines up except for the positioning. And the positioning matters probably more than anything. Um, so that's really uh, kind of what we're watching is we're trying to find a moment when uh, everybody starts scratching their heads and giving up and throwing in the towel because uh, the pain trade is 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 happening. So you don't want to be too early to these things. You can look at the secular realities, but there are opportunities. And again, I think that one opportunity is that vol is low, particularly to the upside. Stock replacement here is an interesting, again, if you're, if you're sitting out there at a 16 and a half VIX um, and you're still in long stock as opposed to some type of long dated calls, I think you're, you're whistling by the graveyard given the secular realities. And ironically, that might be the trade that works on the upside. <laughs> you know, uh, before it works to the downside. So that's something to be thoughtful of. Um, again, we'll have a lot more of this stuff to talk about. It's going to be an interesting couple of months, I think, particularly as I've mentioned. Let's look at May. Let's look at June. Um, there's a lot of things, kind of storm clouds brewing, um, and that lag is working through the system, right, as kind of demand is is getting pulled off the table um, from buybacks and some other so, sources. So 2023 may not be sell in May and go away. I mean, uh, it, it may be. We'll see. It, it could may be, be it June, could be June it or July. Be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Okay, Jim, this, as always, has been just an awesome conversation with so much knowledge shared by you. So thank you so much for doing this today. And of course, we're going to be back uh, next week with uh, MacroHealth. So I think if uh, people like this little uh, introduction to uh, to Macro as it stands right now, definitely uh, come back and listen to that episode as well. Um, and by the way, you can check out all the new content that we're also posting now in terms of blog posts on the TTU website. Uh, as well as the uh, podcast episodes we release each week, because as you can tell, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Global Macro series. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.